So my view says God loves absolutely everyone and absolutely everything, not just humans, not just other creatures. God even loves the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And that means because God loves everyone and everything, God simply can't control anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. Hello, and welcome to Methods, an exploration and guided prayer and meditation. Today, for being with, we're talking with Thomas J. Ord. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Ord is a best-selling and award-winning author, having written or edited more than 25 books. A 12-time faculty award-winning professor, Ord teaches at institutions around the globe. He's a director of the Center for Open and Relational Theology, and Ord is known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. All right, Tom, welcome to Methods. Hey, I'm happy to have this conversation with you. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, What's your religious background? What's your upbringing? And what brought you to the world of theology? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I grew up in the... uh, Wesleyan holiness theological tradition, left it for a little while, but returned. That tradition has uh, churches in it or denominations in it, like the Church of the Nazarene, which of which I'm an ordained elder in that tradition, but also uh, Free Methodist, Wesleyan, some Pentecostal churches or Wesleyan holiness, Salvation Army. So it's kind of uh, the Methodist or Wesleyan portion of the Christian okay. tradition. Um, my upbringing was in a little town in eastern Washington, fairly conservative home church, but uh, some good people and a good pastor, um, and I'm still a part of that tradition. So what, what differentiates the Wesleyan holiness tradition from, like, uh, standard United Methodist? Is that, is that a different thing? or? Yeah, theologically, they're practically the same. Um, The Wesleyan holiness tradition tends to be a little more conservative on social issues like LGBTQ, for instance. Uh, We're not even having that conversation, let alone fighting about it. Um, And uh, also, we've emphasized this idea of sanctification, and um, we've understood it in a lot of different ways, but really emphasize the idea that people can be truly transformed uh, in this life. We don't have to wait till heaven to be transformed. become people of love. Mm, that's good. That's good. I um, I did read one of your books called God Can't, and um, it's it's called God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Evil. So, And I really enjoyed that book, and I think it'd be helpful for a lot of people, and I'll put the, the link to that book in the, uh, the show notes. But I just wanted to ask you, what made you want to write that book? Was it the general problem of theodicy that people leave faith for, or was it something different? Yeah, I had written a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God that came out in 2015. And uh, it sold really well, won awards, all that sort of stuff. But it was really written for an academic press. And uh, people kept saying, you know, these are important ideas. You need to, you need to write in such a way that more people can understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I wrote God Can't partly as a way to present the main ideas of the Uncontrolling Love of God book in a very accessible kind of way. I incorporated lots of stories that people sent about uh, how the previous book had helped them. 
Uh, and boy, since writing God Can't, I get so many letters from people, especially people who have suffered tragedies or have been victims of abuse, who write and say, you know, this book really helps me because uh, I've wondered if God had abandoned me or didn't like me or, you know, um, was punishing me mm-hmm. because of what happened to hear that God couldn't have single-handedly stopped it is reassuring to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely important for, for theological issues. I'm actually, uh, I'm going through, I don't know if you can see this book right now, uh, yes. process and reality by Alfred North Whitehead. And I kind of wish he had done what you did <laughs> and, uh, written a more accessible version because it's, it's a tome for sure. Um, yeah. But I I've read that book in the past and I'm actually going through it right now myself. Oh nice. And uh in the past I was like intimidated by that book cuz it's so technical. Mm. And now I'm going through it thinking, man, he's just not as strong a writer in this book as he is in some other books. Yeah. It could have been written better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness for John Cobb and and all those people that expound upon upon what he did. Um but I, w- I wanted to say that the idea that you propose in God can't, that God is not omnipotent in like the traditional sense and uh, in the coercive sense, it might feel new and maybe even blasphemous to some Christians. Um, yeah. So what would you say to, to people that, that just feel like the idea of God is not all powerful, it, it is wrong? Like, what would you say to those people? Well, I think you're right that the common reaction of most people to me saying God can't do something uh, is to say, wow, this is not the God I was told. This is not the Orthodox God or whatever. But then I start moving through a number of issues that often convince people that they should rethink their view of God's power. I point out, for instance, that there are quite a few biblical passages that say God can't do some things. And when people realize that the Bible, the biblical authors talk about God's inability to perform certain functions, that kind of opens them up to the possibility. Mm-hmm. I use some logic. You know, I say, you know, God, almost every Christian theologian in Christian history has thought that God can't do what is illogical. God can't make two plus two equal 387. So that makes people feel a little bit better, too, to know that, you know, they're not I'm not the first weirdo. Uh, to say God can't do some things. And then I'll just appeal to a number of issues that people have been asking, and the chief one is this problem of evil. Mm -hmm. If God can do anything, then why doesn't God prevent the genuine evil, the pointless pain and unnecessary suffering of our lives? And usually by that time, if people haven't been convinced of my view, they're at least open to it and understand why someone might go the direction I and many other people are going. Mm-hmm. So we're recording this conversation, uh, just depending on when we release it, but it is April, what is it? April 20th? 21st, 21st. I think. Um, so we're right in the middle of this uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic. So if the love that God is, as you say in the book, is uncontrolling. Um, Does that mean, do you think that means that God cannot control this virus and did not purposefully bring it about? Yeah, that's what I think. You know, you've probably, like me, you've seen lots of 
postings on social media. Some of them will say things like, um, God sent this coronavirus to punish us uh, for becoming too idolatrous or turning our eyes away from God or something like that. I reject that view. Other people say, well, God is allowing the virus because God's trying to teach us a lesson. Mm -hmm. God wants us to spend more time with our family or God wants us to, you know, develop our character or whatever. And um, I don't think God's in the business of killing thousands of people and hurting many, many more and disrupting uh, a lot of good in the world just to teach us some kind of lesson. Mm -hmm. I think there's I think God can squeeze good some good out of the bad that we're going through, but that's different from saying God causes it or allows it. Yeah. So my view says God loves absolutely everyone and absolutely everything, not just humans, not just other creatures. God even loves the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And that means because God loves everyone and everything, God simply can't control anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. But this isn't a God who's I don't know, sitting on the sidelines, twiddling his thumb, eating popcorn and saying, man, look at Jory and Tom. They're really <laughs> suffering right now. Or look at these people dying. Boy, that's that's quite funny. No, this is a God who's actively involved at every level of reality, opposing evil, calling us to do good, calling creatures like you and me to take precautions, calling all of reality to what's best and most beautiful moment by moment. Yeah, I like that. It it reminds me of the idea in in process thought of of God as the the divine lore, and I've heard of it described. Uh, if you're familiar with Rob Bell, he has this funny analogy where he calls it the difference between uh, a hammer and a smell, and it uh, it's kind of the idea of power not as power over like a hammer, like you're hammering a nail, but um, power as like a drawing, like a, a calling and alluring, like a smell, like a like fresh baked bread out of the oven. It allures you and draws you towards it. So it how how is God's power, do you think, in this drawing us and what is it drawing us towards? I think God's always calling us to love. Now love means, as I defined it, acting intentionally in response to God and others in creation to promote overall well-being. So God is moment by moment acting, and in this action is empowering us, but also inspiring us, calling us. We can even use biblical words like commanding us to do what is to promote the common good, the, the good of others and ourselves, mm -hmm. overall well-being. And that can take a ton of different forms from art to science to, you know, hanging out with your family to deciding not to be with your family, depending on the circumstances. So God's call is always toward these intense intensities of goodness, beauty, love, excellence, truth, etc. Um, I think that fits actually pretty well with the Christian tradition. You know, the, the part that um, that seems compelling to me in addition to, to the dynamic of, of changing our idea of what power is um, in the divine sense, um, is that as, as it regards to open and relational theology, that God's, that our experience is enfolded into the experience of God and that um, God, that our suffering is God's suffering and that 
Um, God isn't necessarily the Aristotelian unmoved mover, but maybe the the most moved mover. Um, yeah, that's powerful stuff. I mean, that's what people in this tradition call a relational God, a God who's not only affecting the world, but is affected by the world, not only influencing us, but being influenced by us. And um, those of us who've been around the Christian tradition a while, you know, well, I'll just speak for myself. This sounds like the God of the Bible who's in a relationship with us, who's happy and proud of some of the things we do, disappointed, even angry other times because we hurt ourselves or others, but really engaged in really influencing and being influenced. Yeah, it seems like it takes really seriously the, the gospel claim that God suffers alongside of us. It does. But, uh, you know, there's a number of people today um, who have been attracted to this idea of a suffering God. Jürgen Moltmann's made that famous, but process people have been talking about this for a long time. The idea that God is present with us in the midst of our suffering and feeling what we're feeling. And I think that's super important. But some people stop there. Mm -hmm. And then you wonder, well, if God is present with us in our suffering, but God had the power to prevent the suffering in the first place, well, why didn't God do that? Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's enough just to say God suffers with us, as important as that is. I think we should also say that God could not single-handedly have prevented the evil that we experience sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you recently wrote a response to a Time article written by N.T. Wright. Um, uh, it was about Christianity having no answers to the coronavirus and that it wasn't supposed to. And in that article, you said, um, God empowers and inspires us to love during this crisis. Our decisions matter as we care for the hurting, maintain spatial distance, share with the needy, and help in whatever way necessary. We cannot win without God's empowering love, but God needs our cooperation to overcome this evil. So how can we cooperate with God during this time when we're so isolated from each other? Yeah. I mean, I think part of the cooperation God is calling us to do is actually to do some distancing, some geographical distancing. Um, I kind of try to wait, mm -hmm. stay away from that phrase social distancing, because right. right now you and I are socially entwined, but we live a, a country away from each other. And I think there's all kinds of ways we ought to be socially connected right now, even though we're trying to stay six mm -hmm. feet apart from people who are not in our family. So those kinds of things that almost everybody hears they ought to be doing to help prevent the spread of the virus, I think God is the one who is calling us ultimately to be attracted toward, mm -hmm. you know, wearing masks and doing all the kinds of things. In fact, uh, I don't know about you. I've been seeing people lately post things who are frustrated by what the government is telling them to do to, you know, social distance and all that sort of stuff. And they're making claims like, look, God is in control here. And I don't have to, you know, do anything to, you know, to follow these guidelines to help stop the spread of the pandemic because God's in control. Um, and I think that kind of theology actually makes sense if you believe in a controlling God. I mean, if God can single-handedly stop this pandemic, and why isn't God doing that? 
I mean, if God can do it, then maybe this is God's plan from that perspective. But the vast majority of people look at those folks and think, you're nuts. You know, you should be practicing this distancing. You should put on masks. You should be taking precautions. In other words, what most people think is Mm -hmm. that our actions really do matter. And the open relational theology that I propose in God can't and other things builds on that notion. God can't control us or other things, which means what we do matters. So I like to think that even though lots of people today have never heard of the theology called open and relational theology, they're all acting as if they're open and relational theologians because they're freely thinking our choices make a difference on whether or not this pandemic will spread. I've been wondering, you you post a lot of nature photography and um, it seems like it is a spiritual practice to you. So what what about going through nature and taking and taking photographs um, connects you with God? And, and what does that feel like to you experientially? Yeah, I could talk for a long time on this. In fact, I actually do this partly for a living. I give lectures of various types, and one of them is on photography, nature, and God. And I talk about the kind of experiences, the thoughts I have when I'm out in the world, and they are all over the place. So for the sake of this conversation, just let me pick two, okay? (laughs) Um, One of the things that's part of my practice is, this may sound really obvious, but I try to notice things. I try to be aware of my world, try to look at details, try to look at big pictures, try to perceive reality. Um, As you know, many people have come to recognize the importance of slowing down and being present to themselves or to situations. It's kind of like a form of that, except I'm walking through the natural world and being present there and observing what's there and trying to take in all the values and disvalues, all the causes, all the all the the, the uh, stimuli around me. That's part of my practice. I think God is present to all of reality, so God is going to be part of that presence. But I don't think I can perceive God with my five senses, which is something I want to return to in this conversa- conversation. So that's one thing that's going on. Let me. Um, the second thing I think I, I'll mention is that. You you were kind and gracious earlier to say that you really like my photography that I post on social media. And I, I take a lot of time trying to make photographs that are evocative and beautiful or say something important. And um, sometimes people get the impression that, you know, if you go out in nature, these awesome, incredibly beautiful things will be everywhere all the time. But the reality is there's some ugliness in the world as well. You know, there are fires that burn things. There are animals that are hurting. There's death. And um, walking through nature helps me to to appreciate both the beauty and the ugliness, both life and death. And I think a realistic view of the world and a realistic theology can't be Pollyannish, sees everything through rose-colored glasses, but also doesn't have to be, you know, pessimistic and think the world is totally depraved and everybody's going to hell. My walks in nature help me to keep a balanced perspective on life. It seems like it's a combination of 
you know, like walking meditation and, and mindfulness and gratitude and noticing and a bunch of different things all kind of crammed in and creating the very act of creating is meditative. It seems like a lot of things kind of in one, uh, in one piece. So it, it sounds like it'd be, uh, extremely powerful. And in terms of when, when you're observing something, are you, are you thinking about the causes of things and the effects of things? Are you, or are you trying to take in a scene or an image without the mental commentary? You know, it's, it's a, such a variety of things. Like I, I think about what I actually do on the trail or out. Actually, there's not that many trails where I go. So it's me just trailblazing, you know, uh, bushwhacking is what we call it in the hiking world. Um, I have a lot of things going on. Um, some of it's very mental. Sometimes I go out in the natural world and I'll be out there a half hour, hour and realize that in the last bit of time, I have not even spent any time thinking mm -hmm. about what I'm walking through, but I'm going through conversations and things are going on in my life. And it's just kind of a time to process ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sometimes I'm not even aware. I'm, I'm not present like I say I want to mm -hmm. be. And that's I don't beat myself up for that because I think sometimes getting away and thinking through things is part of mm -hmm. what I need. Other times I'm walking along and I'm really acutely aware of light because I'm a photographer. So I'm thinking and asking myself, okay, where's the light right now? What's an image that is provocative, powerful, says something to me? So I'm really there. Other times, like I'm looking for wildlife, or I stop for a moment and I decide to look at details, watch some ants carry something along the ground. So I'm like, my mind is all over the place. Sometimes I try to focus it in on one thing or another, but I don't beat myself up if I'm not focused, at least mm -hmm. most of the time. There are some times in which um, there are some times in which I don't want my mind to go certain directions. Um, about five years ago, I, I went through a very difficult time in my life. I was laid off from my job, mm -hmm. and I still experienced some trauma from that. And I really hate it when those thoughts from that time attack me when I'm out in the wilderness. And I try really hard to avoid thinking about those things. <laughs> um, so those are instances in which I'm trying to control my thought process, processes. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, I'm willing to, to let my mind go in the direction I think it needs to go at the time. I know this is probably a terrible question, but I have to ask, do you have a favorite image that you've taken? I take, I make is the word I like to say. I make all kinds of photos. Um, and if you look at my library of my, you know, best of, <laughs> they're all over the place. You know, sunsets, animals, wide open spaces, close up. You know, uh, depth of field changes, all kinds of things. But I noticed that there is a particular kind of photograph that shows up more often than others. And the photograph I want to describe is a is a, a typical one in this genre. 
It's a photograph in which there is darkness and light. There's order and disorder. There's symmetry and asymmetry. There's life and death. There's soft and hard. I feel like I'm drawn to photos of existence that incorporate a wide spectrum of reality. I don't mm -hmm. like photographs that are just all sun and roses. I don't like photographs that are just all ugliness. I mean, I guess I should, I mm -hmm. shouldn't say I don't like them. I like them sometimes, but I find myself drawn toward haunting images that have all kinds of variabilities in them. Mm -hmm. I didn't take any photography classes myself, so I'm self-taught, but I read a lot of books. And people who write books on photography oftentimes say, well, make sure you focus in on the one thing that you want to communicate to your uh, viewer. And so isolate everything out of your, your uh, lens that's not important. I tend to be a person who adds things to my image. I tend to be a person who's got a cluttered image in some ways because I think of life as full as not simple as quite complex. So the photograph mm. that I'm going to give you, perhaps what I've just said will make sense as people see it. But it sounds like there's like contrasting elements, maybe like you said, yes. like dark and light. And, awesome. and that's definitely something that, that I find like valuable for, for my spiritual practices, taking things that you you want to exclude one part of it. You know, you want to look at the good and exclude the bad, or you want to look at the bad and exclude the good because you want a cohesive image. But yeah. I think part of that spiritual um, and contemplative bent is to take the coincidence of opposites and, and put them together and make them nice. that whole making instinct. Yes, that's, that's very well put. When people look at this photograph, one of the things I want them to notice is that the sun, which is obscured, is not in the middle of the photograph. It's not in what photographers call the rule of third. It's not a third of the way from either side. It's a little off center. Mm -hmm. It's a little out of balance. And to me, that represents my life. <laughs> that represents <laughs> life itself. It's not, right. life isn't horrible. It's not ugly and genuinely evil all the time, but it's also not beautiful and wonderful all the time. And mm -hmm. I like images that portray that contrast, as you put it. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I Before we got started, I mentioned that I want to talk about a few things. And one of them I want to talk about fits really well with you bringing up Whitehead. So I'm going to jump right in, okay? All right. <laughs> Um, and those of you who are listening to this podcast, I'm going to get nerdy for a little bit, philosophically nerdy, but I'm going to come around to a point that I think you'll appreciate. In the history of theology and philosophy, those people who believed in God have struggled to talk about how they might have direct perceptions of God. It's very common for people to say they look at the world around them, the beauty, the order, whatever, and they infer that there is a God, a creator, an order, a designer of some sort. I'm not against that kind of argument. 
But this kind of inference isn't direct perception. It's of God. It's looking at the world and then kind of making a leap of an imagination that there is a God who somehow ordered it. Of course, if you're like me and you who see also ugliness in the world, you got to figure out how God either did that or, in my view, didn't do it and couldn't even have stopped it. So you have to think about your theology in light of the the ugliness and the evil as well. But uh, this idea of direct perception of God is really important to me. And theologians have struggled with how to come to grips with it. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named John Wesley, and he was influenced by John Locke. John Locke is as close to a hero as Alfred North Whitehead has in his Process and Reality book. He just thinks Locke is the greatest thing. And one of the things that Locke says is that nothing comes into our minds that didn't first come through our senses. Mm -hmm. So John Wesley is thinking about this, and he says, hold on a second. I think I perceive God. But I don't actually see God walking around. I don't smell God, taste God. I mean, he'll talk about tasting God, but he doesn't mean it literally. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he'll talk about hearing God's voice, but he's not talking about, you know, putting a telephone up to his ear and, you know, hearing something. So he says, how can I talk about direct perception of God? He comes up with what he called the sixth sense, spiritual senses. He says, you and I have these spiritual senses, and God is a spirit, and therefore we have this interaction with God. I think that's a creative move that doesn't quite go far enough. And here is where I get nerdy. I think Whitehead's view that God is directly present to everything in reality is vitally important to think about spirituality and spiritual formation. And in this book, Process and Reality, he gets he gets into some really technical details about what he calls perception in the mode of causal efficacy versus perception in the mode of presentational immediacy. Mm-hmm. And presentational immediacy is something like our five senses. We look at the world and somehow that data, that information gets to our minds, our but our minds don't actually see things. It relies upon our eyes. And this is always secondary uh, information for Whitehead. It's not direct perception of our minds mm-hmm. to the world. It has to move through our senses. But Whitehead says this mode of causal efficacy, perceiving things causally, allows us to have direct perception with the world. And he thinks direct perception of God. So mm-hmm. leave the nerdiness behind for a second. I'm claiming here that you and I have direct access to God's causal action in our lives moment by moment, even though we can't perceive God with our five senses, and even though God's causal action in our lives is always also accompanied by other causal factors so that we can't know with absolute certainty exactly which factors are God and which are not. We make claims about love, truth, and beauty, etc., and we think God inspires those. But God can't give us an unambiguous, crystal clear revelation because there's other forces and causes going on, plus we have our own perceptive capacities in trying to make sense of these things. But my point of all this nerdiness is to say that I actually have a theology which says We have direct perception of the creator of the universe moment by moment, 
and we can respond to God moment by moment. And this philosophical framework is the way that I've tried to articulate it in a way that I think can make some sense, at least to some people. <laughs> that actually was really helpful because uh, I, I'm reading through process and reality right now, too. And um, that that was a, a kind of confusing point to me between presentational immediacy and causal efficacy. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but presentational immediacy is the basis for his concept of misplaced concrescence. Is that, concreteness. Is that how it works? Yeah. Fallacy of yeah. misplaced concreteness. Yeah. Yeah. So it reminds me, I'm also simultaneously reading through um, the Philokalia right now. And it makes me think of how like the Desert Fathers talk about asceticism and how they and this this goes for for that it goes for um like the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads too but um there's this stream in esoteric religion that there's this ascetic bent and sometimes they go a little too far i sure. think but um but it seems like there's something there in asceticism that talks about shutting off the five senses and the way they, I think, talk about the the sixth sense, sense like you say, is with the the intellect, um, which means something different now. But yeah. in the sense that they're talking about it, they're talking about it as the the eye of the heart, right? And so that kind of reminds me of that direct perception of God. So yeah, that's that's really helpful. I like that. Yeah, think of all the ways Christians and, and probably other traditions as well, but I know Christianity better. Think about the ways Christians have tried to talk about this communication, this revelation. They've used things like still small voice or mm -hmm. intuition or inner light mm -hmm. or something like this, divine senses, all kinds of language that tries to get at real perception of God, but realizing that our five senses don't really do that literally. Sometimes mm -hmm. we'll, we'll say we hear God's voice, but we don't, at least most people, don't mean you know, it's an actual audible sound. Um, all those are attempts, I think, to get at what Whitehead calls pre uh, perception in the mode of causal efficacy in which we have direct perception of divine influence in our lives. Does that flow with the idea that, that Hume put forward that we don't have causality because we can't directly perceive it? And but Whitehead kind of brings causality back by saying we perceive it, but not through presentational immediacy. So is that bringing the, the causality back, but in like more of a spiritual sense? Yes, uh, not necessarily spiritual sense. I think you could not even believe in God and think that Whitehead is right about causation. I mean, I believe in God and so did Whitehead. But um, yeah, so Hume rightly said, look, you're talking about causation. And if we use our five senses, we don't actually perceive causation in the world. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, if you're really going to be a phenomenologist, if you're really going to be a scientist who has to use your five senses to perceive the world, you might you should just cut out causation if you're going to be um, consistent in saying science follows their five senses. Of course, none of us actually lives like that. Right. We all assume causation in our practice. Whitehead comes along and says, you know, Hume's right if we only had one view, one capacity of perception, that is, our five senses through presentational immediacy. 
But he says more fundamental is perception in this mode of causal efficacy. So uh, we actually have a deeper um, commitment in the way we live our lives to real causation in the world. That fits how we all go about day to day. And therefore, we can overcome this problem that Hume rightly pointed out if we limited the perception to one particular type. So bridging the gap between the nerdy and the not so nerdy, <laughs> um, how, how do you advocate for someone of your or I persuasion or, or someone of a different faith background uh, to become aware of causal efficacy in a way that's healthy for today? I think one of God's primary causal actions moment by moment in our lives is the call, the lure, the presentation of values and purposes. So when I feel a nudge or have a sense that I ought to be helping someone else or helping myself, doing what's good, we might say, then I assume that that's part of God's causal activity in my life. You know, in some ways, what I'm saying is just like what most Christians talk about. <laughs> you know, it's not really all that weird. Like, you know, they say, I'm feeling God calling me to help my next door neighbor. Well, that fits perfectly in a Whiteheadian view that I'm proposing here. Now, what doesn't fit perfectly is if people say, God told me this, and I know with absolute certainty because God controlled the message, and I, you know, it's kind of certainty. That doesn't mm -hmm. fit. But the idea that our intuitions about goodness, beauty, value, truth, ultimately have God as their source, that's very common in the Christian tradition and what Whitehead proposes in his uh, philosophy. I'll say one more thing, if it's all right. Um, it actually kind of fits in with what we've been talking about as process, but I want to shift it over to an idea in the Wesleyan tradition that it's actually not just in that tradition, but it's usually associated with it, a phrase called prevenient grace. Hmm. Prevenient grace is the idea that God acts prior to our response and calls and empowers or enables the capacity for us to respond to God. So prevenient, pre means before, ven is the Latin word to come or to enter. So God comes before us, and I think God does that moment by moment. So we move through life moment by moment, God acting first, empowering, inspiring, calling us to respond in love. We mm -hmm. can choose to respond otherwise, but God is calling us to do what's good, beautiful, truthful, etc., moment by moment. That reminds me of, um, you know, quote heresy, although I don't think it's, it's quite heresy, but that, that the yeah. divine presence within us is is what is responding to to God it's God responding to God you know through through us as as an intermediary and and I think yeah. people misinterpret him a lot by thinking that he's saying we don't need God but I don't think he's he's saying that he's saying that no we we are we do and we already have God you know in that sense yeah yeah, yeah it's hard to know exactly what he thought because 
practically all that we know about him comes through Augustine and Augustine didn't like him. And so it's hard to, hard to trust the views of your opponents, (laughs) whether or not they accurately represent you. But yeah, it is affirming that Pelagian notice that no, uh, that Pelagian, um, idea that we have some real responsibility, some real freedom to respond to God. Um, all that to say this, maybe this will be my closing comment. My spiritual practice, I do a lot of things, but one of the most common ones is I wake up almost every morning and I do a little breathing practice, sometimes when I'm still in bed, other times when I'm on my walk. And my breathing practice is really simple. I breathe in, and when I breathe in, I'm imagining I'm being influenced by God. I breathe in God, and then I'll breathe out, and I'll think love. Um, God is affecting me, and my response is love. And then sometimes I'll breathe in God, and I'll breathe out and begin to set my intentions for the day. This is a practice that helps me focus on my view that God that I rely moment by moment on God's empowering grace in my life, but I must respond. God doesn't control me. I'm not a robot. And so this symbolic breathing in and breathing out is saying, God, I rely on you, but I'm also responding to you. Um, And that fits my theology. It fits my life practice. It helps me sort of set my life, and actually in most cases, what I want to do and be that particular day. Yeah, I love that. It seems like like a reducing of that resistance. It makes me, I just had the image of when you're breathing in and out, uh, that that prayer is kind of like opening a window and, and letting the breeze move through the house. Nice. I'm a very visual person, I like so that. I always think of these like visual, you know, representations of things. But yeah. 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 Well, Tom, this has been amazing. I'm glad to finally have spoken to you. Um, where can people go to hear more about your work? Yeah. Well, thanks for the invitation. Um, you know, you can go to my website, thomasjord.com. That's my full name, J A Y O O R D.com. Um, I, this la- uh, last year, started an organization called the Center for Open and Relational Theology. And uh, I invite people to go there and get resources. Jory, you're not on that as a voice, are you? You need to register. You need to be one of our voices. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know about the center at all? Do you know anything? I've seen seen you post about it. I haven't haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but yeah, I'll take a look at it. Yeah, please do. Um, it's, uh, It's a center that promotes open and relational theology, which is a big umbrella uh, theology which emphasizes God's relationality and our relationality, but also the moment-by-moment existence that we uh, we experience such that the future is open, not only mm-hmm. to us, but also to God. Mm-hmm. But underneath that umbrella, there's all kinds of other subcategories like process theology, evangelical openness, feminist, all kinds of folks sort of have other designations, but they fit under that general umbrella. So mm-hmm. I'd encourage your listeners to check out that because I think there might be some resources that would be helpful. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll put all the links to your website and to into that site in the in the show notes for people as well. But awesome. This has been great and I appreciate you very much. Hey, I appreciate the invitation and the conversation. <laughs>